I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Something I always enjoy when I receive them is a kind of selection of, I don't know what the best way to describe it, all the warning signs or labels. You know the kind of thing I'm talking about? You know, the sort of thing that you think, this should kind of be self-explanatory, such as when you buy a packet of nuts and it has a warning, contains nuts. <laughs> and then there are others that make you think, there's got to be some kind of story behind this. Why somebody thought that this was important. Some of them might make you want to cringe. Someone, sometimes I just wonder who tried putting their child in a dishwasher to play with it. And how many times did this happen before somebody thought that they had to put up a sign saying you know, a cow might fall off the cliff. Some don't really seem that threatening, really. Uh, they said it's just temporary clothes due to ducks. And then there's other ones, well, if you need to be told, then really... <laughs> and I would love to know who is, who is tempted to use a hairdryer whilst they're asleep. But I do know that, well, this one, someone will actually do that, yes. I've never really been hungry enough, maybe I'm blessed, I've never really been hungry enough where I've looked at a coat hanger and thought, hmm, that looks tasty. <laughs> and as for this one, And then there are times when you really go, I so want to know what the backstory about this is. Uh, what recent events caused them to say, in the light of recent events, no Oreos will be allowed to be in the eaten in the library? And then there are others that you just don't really want to know. The toilet in Ikea, the toilet in the store of Ikea, telling them not to use it. And sometimes you wonder, and perhaps by now you're wondering, where's he going with this? And as, as, as I said, something needs to be said, however bizarre, it seems to be an issue. And so often you think, surely that's obvious. And over the last few months, we've been walking slowly through the Apostles' Creed. It's the oldest, most widely accepted outline of the Christian story. And believe even that, I was sort of saying to us, they're not always as obvious as we might think. You know, there might be some controversy about them. 
And in the last few weeks, we've been reflecting on a series of one-liners towards the end. We have thought about what it meant to believe in a holy Catholic church or a communion of saints. Today, we're thinking about what it means to say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And in one sense, we might hope that this should be one of the less controversial parts of the creed. Surely, it's one of the more obvious aspects of our faith. And so you find yourself in that position where you think, why do they think it necessary about this? Especially when you realize this is actually one of the later bits to be added. So it's kind of worth looking at the backstory to find out why did they think they had to add this? And you think, surely it would be front and center, or too obvious to need to be said. One of the things that made Jesus controversial and everything was that he went about telling people that their sins were forgiven. One of the most famous stories he told is about a father blowing his reputation by running to greet a rebellious son who had brought disgrace on the whole family and welcoming a home without condition. And the New Testament church spoke a lot about the forgiveness of sin as a key part of their message. In fact, as Luke tells it, it was their message. The risen Jesus spoke to the disciples and said, it was written that the Messiah would, would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance, of sin, uh, repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name, beginning from Jerusalem. And that was what they did. At Pentecost, Peter urged the crowd to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter told Cornelius that everyone who believed in the name of Jesus received forgiveness for their sins. Paul told those that were listening to, to him in Antioch that through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. In pretty much exactly the same words, he tells both Ephesians and Colossians that in Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So far, so good. Except that in the, what followed in the next century, something really strange happened. The writers who came immediately after the New Testament are called the Apostolic Fathers. And between them, they make virtually no mention of forgiveness. Their emphasis was on the call to holiness, to a life lived that was differently from those around them, that God was primarily a lawgiver and a judge. The focus was on their ethical demands of following Jesus, and they were rigorous. Church discipline was very severe, and excommunication was not uncommon for those who fell. And then the pendulum swung back again. Against this, there were those who argued, well, surely the church wasn't just a community of saints, but it was like an ark saving good and bad. The church was to be a community where the sinner could come and find healing and forgiveness. And throughout the Christian centuries, there have been swings in this pendulum, and there's always been the tension between those who want the call to holiness to be emphasized and those who want the call to grace to be emphasized. Some have focused more on one and some on the other. But there was one major controversy in particular that led to this inclusion of this phrase in the creed. And it came early in the fourth century. In 303, the Emperor Diocletian 
ordered that the property of all Christians be seized, that their books should be burned, and the places they used for worship burned. All Christian leaders were to be imprisoned, and they would only be released if they sacrificed to the Roman gods. And to make it easier for them, they were allowed to do so en masse. And some refused and paid the price with their lives. But there were others, including some of the clergy, who gave in and made the sacrifices. This meant renouncing their baptism and they were considered traitors. And the period of persecution passed. The state became more relaxed again about pluralism. The church began to be tolerated, even encouraged. And some of those who had crumbled in the face of persecution attempted to return. And this left the church with a pastoral problem. Could they just accept them back as if nothing had happened? Did they have to go through some kind of public initiation ceremony? Did they have to be rebaptized? Maybe they shouldn't be allowed in at all, some argue. Maybe they should be permanently excluded. I mean, how do you know that the next time trouble comes around, they're not just going to do the same thing? And what about the clergy who did it? They renounced their baptism. Did that invalidate everything their faith and everything they'd done before? Did that mean that everything that they'd done before is invalidated? If you were, were they ever truly part of the church at all? And if one of those ministers had baptized you, were you baptized at all? Mm-hmm. And yeah, and they, these were big questions for them, maybe, maybe less so for some of us. But at the heart of all this theological wrestling, there was some basic questions. What makes you a follower of Jesus? What happens if you stray? Is the church for those who have made it? Or can struggling, weak, uncertain souls find their place in the community? Could God forgive them? Could the church forgive them? Could they forgive one another? And the creed confirms the conclusion they came to when it says, I believe in the forgiveness of sin. It says, all who turn to Jesus are the church. It isn't just for the pure and successful. Even the dramatic failures are not excluded from God's grace. We sometimes sing a hymn which has the line, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. That's what they were saying when they said, I believe. If you were here last week, you might might remember I mentioned a guy called Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the late 4th, early 5th century. And he was the one who spoke of the church as more like a hospital for the sick, seeking healing, than a communion of saints. And then he, he also said, we must never despair of anyone at all, for God's forgiveness can cover all sin. And another ancient theologian I've mentioned in recent weeks was a guy called Isaac the Syrian. And he lived in the 7th century. 
And uh, he's keeping it like this. As a handful of sand is thrown into the great sea, so are the sins of all flesh in comparison to the mind of God. For just as a strongly flowing stream is not obstructed by a handful of dust, so the mercy of the Creator is not stemmed by the sins of His creatures. Your sin has as much power to block God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness as a handful of sand has to stop the ocean crashing into the rocks. So when we say we believe in the forgiveness of sins, you're saying, no, the church isn't just for the pure, the sorted, the ones who have got it all sussed. God's church must have patience with those who doubt and understanding towards those who stumble along the path of faith. For none of us are part of God's family on our own merits. We all are here and here alone because of what Christ has done for us. We all stand before God on the same level, trusting in his love, mercy, and forgiveness. And we are all totally reliant on his grace. We're reliant on God being faithful, even when we are faithless. His mercy is greater than our sin. His yes is stronger than our no. And without that, we have nothing to say to the world. Of course, that's not always easy to believe, is it? Whilst there are those, there are those who refuse to acknowledge that they might have done anything wrong ever, and certainly not sinful, there are those who are weighed down or paralyzed by mistakes or fear and fears. There are those who carry shame with them for stuff in their past which God has already dealt with. There are those who think that they are somehow so bad that even if God could forgive others, there is nothing he could do for them. God so loved the world. God so loved you that he gave his one and only son for you. Nothing can keep you from that love. God is the loving father in the story of rebellious sons. And nothing gives him more delight than when one comes to him and says, Father, I know I've messed up. Forgive me. I want to do it differently. You barely get the city, but you won't get the words out before he's welcoming you home, dusting you down, and offering you a fresh start. Now, it may be that you have done something really awful. Fair enough. And maybe you do need to go to someone else and make amends and 
say, I'm really sorry for the hurt I've caused. And if you have, good, you should do that. But God's acceptance of you is not conditional on that other person's acceptance of you. We are called to live in peace with others as far as within our power to do so. If others refuse to live in peace with us, well, that's between them and God. Leave them to it. Don't get dragged into it. But if you need to hear this this morning, hear it. Your sins are forgiven. And all that is asked of you is to receive them. Your sins are forgiven. And all that is asked is to receive them. So far, so good. But that's not all this section of the creed is saying. Yes, we are affirming God's, our belief in God's forgiveness in us. But this is one section of the creed where it will become apparent to others whether we truly believe in it. People won't always be able to tell whether you believe in God as a creator, or whether you believe in the virgin birth, or whether you believe in resurrection from the dead. But if you believe in the forgiveness of sins, it will become apparent by whether you're a forgiving person. It's no accident that this phrase is inserted right after the lines about the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints. Because that Holy Catholic Church and that communion of saints are going to totally rely on forgiveness for, for their survival. Because anywhere there are groups of people who are brought together, there are so many opportunities for relationships to break down, for hurt to be caused, for harm to be done. To paraphrase Jesus, where two or three are gathered, sooner or later forgiveness is going to need to be given and received. And in this one, and in this one, whether we truly believe in the forgiveness of sins will be apparent by whether we actually do it. And that's not to say it's easy. No one should tell you it is. True forgiveness has to come from the heart. And it is powerful when we witness it. At this time of year, my mind is always cast back to Remembrance Sunday, 1987, to Enniskillen, when an IRA bomb exploded near the Times War Memorial, leaving 11 people dead and 63 people injured. It led to a series of gun and bomb attacks aimed at Catholics in Belfast over the following week, 14 separate incidents. And amongst the dead that day, in Enniskillen, was a young woman called Marie Wilson. She was 20 years old. Whole life seemingly ahead of her. 
And her father, Gordon, was amongst the injured. But his words, I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge were amongst the most powerful, most remembered words from the 30-year troubles that consumed my own country when I was growing up. His calls for forgiveness and reconciliation became known as the spirit of Enniskillen. And he followed it up. He didn't just say it with words. He followed it up by becoming a peace campaigner, negotiating with people on both sides of the conflict to try to put an end to the violence. He became a senator in the Irish Republic. And it's sad he never lived to see the Good Friday Agreement because he was one of the most people, one of the people who was most instrumental in bringing that about. And such forgiveness stands out because it is rare. And it's rare because it's flipping hard. For all sorts of reasons. Quite a few of them are to do with the fact that we don't understand what forgiveness is. And forgiveness is not saying it was okay or denying our heart. If it's okay, there's no such thing as forgiveness. It's not needed. Forgiveness is not necessary. Forgiveness only becomes necessary when it is not okay. Nor does it mean we, go, we forget it and go back to how things were. Forgiving someone doesn't mean you have to put yourself in the position where they can do it to you again and again and again. So if you've had that employee steal from you, don't rehire them. Or don't go back to that partner who cheated on you or beat you up. Some people are toxic and they will hurt you again and again. It isn't good for you or for them to go back. And forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Reconciliation involves two parties, forgiveness only one. The other party may never apologize, they may never feel sorry, they may not even acknowledge they're wrong. But forgiveness simply means I'm not going to live my life carrying around the bitterness or seeking revenge. I agree, in an ideal world, reconciliation will come about and everyone will hug and we'll be all friends again. But you are not responsible for how the other person reacts to your forgiveness. And forgiveness does not mean that the normal, normal rules of justice don't apply, that there are no consequences for actions. So if someone attacks you or robs you, it's not a case of I forgive them, don't send them to court. That's a whole different issue. Another thing, forgiveness, as with any part of the Christian life, is more often a process than an instantaneous thing. True forgiveness takes time. Somebody wronged you, it hurt, and we need to heal. And sometimes the way we speak about forgiveness and we're challenged about our need to forgive, we don't always appreciate how long people have carried some of this around for a long time. And forgiveness can, be, can involve unlearning a lot of unhelpful, even destructive habits. It might be progress in the journey of forgiveness 
if you can just stop fantasizing about how you're going to get back at that person for a while. Forgiveness is one area where the will to change and the direction in which you are traveling is every bit as important as how far you got along the road. Forgiveness is costly. It literally means to let go. We let go of our right to revenge. It means we absorb the hurt rather than dish it back or pass it on. That's what Jesus does on the cross. He absorbs all the sins of the world and refuses to pass it on. Rather than seek revenge, rather than call down the legions of angels, he breathes forgiveness over them. In forgiveness, we let go of the responsibility to make everything right. We entrust the circumstances which require them and those we need to forgive to God who is so much better at handling it than we are. And it's hard. Because revenge is hard wired into us. And forgiveness cannot be forced. But it's necessary. For ourselves and for others. Forgiveness it said involves setting someone free and then discovering that the person who was in prison is you. That you're saying, I'm not going to carry around what they did to me. They are not going to define how I live going forward. But it's necessary for community. On today of all days, we recognize the results of unforgiveness. All of those names on that screen that you read, they're not even the people of Harry. They're the people of Greenhill. If you go to the other side of Lulands Road, there's another war memorial. And there's another longer list of names of people in that parish. Just the other side of the road. When it spirals into war and it takes countless lives every year, it exposes the myth that there is such a thing as a war to end all wars. Mm. It doesn't exist. Mm. The alternative to forgiveness is to keep passing on the hurt. And that will destroy any community, from a family to the international community. But without forgiveness, there will be no holy Catholic Church, and there will be no communion of saints. For God knows we will hurt one another. I wish it weren't so, but it's a fact of life. But we're not allowed to do it alone. Because thankfully we don't just believe 
in a holy Catholic church and a communion of saints. We believe in the Holy Spirit. We could be at work in us, providing the healing which makes forgiveness possible, helping us to love, even when it's difficult, and holding us together when otherwise we might tear ourselves apart. As we said last week, whilst we're a communion of saints, we are at the same time a fellowship of sinners. And we all stand at some point in the need of forgiveness. So may God grant you the grace to receive forgiveness when you need it. To accept forgiveness from others and from God. May you see that your sin can no more block his grace than a handful of sand can block the ocean. May you see your need of grace to receive forgiveness from others and may God be at work in you, leading you on the road to the forgiveness we say we believe in. And help us to be a people who can truly say, not just that God forgives us, but that we believe in the power of the forgiveness of sin. Grace.